We are in Luke 2, starting at verse 21. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Hope. Good morning. My name is Ryan Vincent, and it is my pleasure to open up God's Word with you this morning in our last Sunday of the year. We're going to put the Christmas series to bed by spending some time asking this question. Christmas is over, so what do we do now? Um... You may have noticed that the colors have changed, the candles are gone, the blue table runners have been taken down, the blue banners are down, and everything's gone to white and gold, which is pretty traditional for the Christmas season. And, you know, there's been lots of texts back and forth. A lot of times when we're shifting into a new season, my phone will start to blow up with a lot of staff members saying, what are the colors, Ryan? Remind us what are the colors? We're panicking, right? It's Saturday night, we need to put the sanctuary together. What are the colors? And... The interesting thing is that, you know, we'd be moving into the Christmas colors, and Christmas, if we were to follow the calendar more strictly, would last for probably about five or six more weeks. Then we would shift into this thing called ordinary time, and it would go to green, and no one would know what that means, and then Lent starts really early this year, so we're just trying to massage things for us Protestants who are stealing a little bit of a tradition from other denominations, and 
What's fun is we're, we're, we're making these decisions and we really are asking the question, okay, we've done Christmas, so what do we do between now and Easter? Like we've got these two big holidays, the two high holidays of the Christian calendar, and, and, and what are we doing now? Um, Christmas as a season, you know, we, we do Advent here, and, and I, I remarked to my wife just a few weeks ago, I get the point of Advent. I, I find myself frequently frustrated with the struggle to slow down. December's just get so gobbled up with calendars and parties and this and that and the other and school events for kids and, and it just feels very hectic, which doesn't seem to fit the vibe of, of Advent and, and yet there's responsibilities that need to be tended to and when does, when does it slow down? And, and it can come so fast that all of a sudden we're having a Christmas Eve service last Sunday and a Christmas Eve service Sunday evening and, and it can be very easy to just miss one of the most important questions. One of the questions that is of such incredible consequence that every single human being on the planet has to grapple with it for good or for bad. It's interesting that maybe we miss this question because it's not that interesting to us after a while. There are other questions that we find more interesting like political debates. Now, those are important, and they're pretty interesting, but they're not of incredible consequence, such as the question that Christmas begs. My life group has this, this silly way of starting out our, our meeting each Sunday evening. Um, Stephen Oliver likes to ask, would you rather questions? And I won't out him here in front of everybody, because they're the most ridiculous questions in the world. And yet, we will spend an hour debating over nonsense. He has this ability to just reel you in on something of no consequence whatsoever and we'll debate it. The question is interesting but meaningless. I have heard people have a legitimate conversation about which type of milk is better. Whole milk, 2%, skim milk, chocolate, and then all the other milks where we've decided to get them out of nuts and other things. And what's What's funny about that is that a lot of you have a really strong opinion, you just don't want to admit it. And a lot of you are like, it's Brahms or nothing. So we've got opinions. Some of you would be like me and have the right answer and that all milk is bad. Why would I drink that? But an interesting question, but an unimportant one. But Christmas demands that we answer the question, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? This morning we have three scenes as we put Luke chapter two to bed. Um, we have Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to Jerusalem. So we've gone from Nazareth and we've gone from Bethlehem. We've had the, the, uh, the, the, the time where they've, they've had visitors necessarily. We, we don't know if they got there in time, but shortly after, they need to go to Jerusalem. There's that scene. And you have two new characters, a prophet named Simeon. He's never named as such, but the details match. And then a prophetess named Anna. And what they're going to do this morning is there's nothing in this, this passage that's necessarily radical. We may, we may learn some things here and there of some historical significance, and we might discover a connection to another text. But the, the overarching principles that govern how we ought to answer the question 
what do we do with Jesus, are going to be unbelievably humdrum. That's actually one of my favorite things about the Bible is it's brutally consistent. It just says the same thing over and over and over. And I can't think of a better way to put 2023 to bed than to remind ourselves how should we deal with Jesus. Many, maybe even most in this room have at least dealt with Jesus in the same way that we've seen here in the baptistry. But that doesn't mean that we can stop asking that question. It doesn't mean that when Christmas comes around yet again next year or when Easter comes up in a couple of months, that we don't have to continue asking ourselves, what do we do with Jesus? So we're going to look at this. We're just going to walk through the text. First scene begins in verse 21. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. So we know that we've, you know, it's been about a month now, but we've, we've seen this story where Jesus' name is, is divinely given. Mary and Joseph are told what to name him. His name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And they've done the whole thing where they ended up in Bethlehem following the orders from Augustus. So what's interesting in this first little section is we're going to see that Mary and Joseph are very attuned to following the authority that they find themselves under, whether that's Caesar or the Mosaic Law. When the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now on the screen, these texts, you see the bolded sections. If you have a CSB, a Christian Standard Version of the Bible, um, where... Old Testament quotations or very strong allusions bordering on quotations are found in the New Testament. They're, they're labeled in bold, which is just cues you that Luke is pulling from somewhere else. He's pulling from the Old Testament. In Exodus 13, we see this first command about the firstborn male. And I'll pause there to just remind us that this is the very beginning of Luke's gospel. There's also, there's a lot of more chapters. There's 20 more chapters. And then we also have uh, Matthew's account, Mark's account, and John's account. And in all four Gospels together, one of the most overarching, prominent, and important Old Testament themes that governs how we are to understand Jesus' task and his mission to bring about the salvation of the world, the Old Testament idea that sits underneath all of that is the Exodus account. The the gospel writers go back to the Exodus all the time. They continue to look back to the story where God's people were in bondage and God miraculously delivered them from that bondage so that they could live freely to worship him. It sounds a lot like our bondage to sin. And it sounds a lot like what God does to us where he relieves us of our chains and gives us new life so that we may worship him fully. The Exodus account sits behind all of it. And Luke drops these little hints. Mary and Joseph, obedient to the authority of Caesar Augustus, are are even more obedient to the authority of the law given at Sinai. And every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. Exodus 13, verse 11. 
when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites. This won't be on the screen, by the way. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your ancestors and gives it to you, this is Moses speaking to the people of God, recently redeemed from Egypt, you are to present to the Lord every firstborn male of the womb, and you must redeem every firstborn among your sons. In other words, because of the way that God had destroyed Egypt with the taking of their firstborn. In response, out of gratitude, out of devotion, and out of worship, the people of God are then to dedicate every firstborn male back to God. And there is the option to purchase them back from temple service, which apparently is what happens here with Jesus. He doesn't remain in the temple. Later on, he'll run away just to hang out at the temple, but he doesn't remain like... like Samuel, she offered him, his mother Hannah offered her firstborn miraculously conceived son to temple service, tabernacle service, and he serves, he tends to Eli, tends to the work of the temple. That's what they're doing here with Jesus. They're remaining obedient to the law. And then it says a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That seems rather strange for us that she would have to go and do this, but in the law, there are provisions for how to Re, um, reassert ceremonial cleanliness after giving birth to a child. And so in Leviticus 12, it talks, uh, right before this section, it talks about if, if, if you've given birth to a child, you are to bring a, a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. It says, however, in, verse, uh, in Leviticus 12, 8, if she doesn't have sufficient means for a sheep, she may take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. Then the priest will make atonement on her behalf and she will be clean. So Mary and Joseph are tending to the law. They're following the prescription for what is necessary after having a child, particularly a firstborn child. And we get this little clue that they were also not of much meat. They could not afford the sacrifice. Jesus is going to grow up in a, in a very um, impoverished state. And I don't know that that has actually much to do with the story, but Luke drops these details for some reason. And so we pay attention as much as we can. They did not have a lamb to sacrifice. And I, think, I wonder if Luke is playing with some irony, given that the baby they had with them was the sacrificial lamb to come. And then you get scene two. We move on to Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Simeon sounds incredible. His piety is put on focus as, as Luke describes the character of this man. He is the, uh, it, it functions almost as the ideal Israelite. You ask the question, I've asked this a lot as I read the Gospels. How could really good Israelites miss who Jesus is? There's lots of reasons, I think. But it, it, it astounds me how frequently the Messiah has come and how frequently they have missed who he is. And yet Simeon is different he is righteous, that means he's obedient to the law, as Mary and Joseph have been described. He's devout, that means he's pious, he frequents the temple. And he's looking forward to Israel's consolation. And in other words, he is full of this expectant hope that God is going to restore his people and redeem them fully. 
from their exile. Because if you remember your Israelite history, they were functionally exiled into Egypt and then rescued by God. And then the kingdom flourished and then the kingdom fell. And with conquest of the Assyrians and the exile into Babylon, the people of Israel never really felt settled. Even long after being back in their homeland, they just sit under the long shadow of Roman oppression and occupation. And Simeon, a righteous man, devout, is looking for the consolation, the comfort that God will offer to the people of Israel. And I like how Luke just throws this in. The Holy Spirit was on him. We aren't told in what sense. We aren't told if that's been the case his entire life. We, we gather, we infer in some sense that this is an, an older gentleman who's been waiting a long time. It seems as though he is now going to, to uh, go on to be with the Lord at, at a ripe old age. But Israel's consolation is an important thing that he is looking for. And, and, and you can just read, the, that's code for where is the Messiah? Another way to read that is, where is the servant promised at the end of Isaiah? The the suffering servant, the one who suffers as though slain, where is he? And Simeon is anxiously, anxiously waiting. In Isaiah 49, this, this also won't be on the screens, but in Isaiah 49, this is in between servant songs. So Isaiah has four hymnic poetic sections that describe the suffering servant in four different ways. And in between songs two and three is this description. Shout for joy, you heavens. Earth rejoice. Mountains break into joyful shouts, for the Lord has comforted his people. In other words, he's he's given them consolation, he's consoled them. And will have compassion on his afflicted ones. As Isaiah is prophesying, the people are on the doorsteps of exile. But there's this hope, there's this promise that that will not be permanent. You will not be in exile in perpetuity. There will be redemption. There will be restoration. Though you are afflicted now, God will bring you back. And that's what what Simeon's looking for. And it's interesting that he sees a baby being rolled into, they didn't have strollers, being carried into the temple complex. And he's like, that's the consolation of Israel. It's, it's that, that baby, it's that person, it's that Messiah. You get this really interesting connection at the end of the book of Acts, also written by Luke, by the way where the apostle Paul has been arrested and he is en route to Rome. And he starts to describe why this is fine, why no one needs to panic. This is the phrase he uses in Acts 28, verse 20. He says, in fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing these chains. Who does Paul mean? He means Jesus. It's because of Jesus. It's because of Israel's hope. It's because of Israel's consolation that I'm wearing these chains. And it's this consolation that Simeon has eagerly been waiting for. And again, he doesn't say really much 
about what it means that the Holy Spirit was on him, but I think it might just be a Lucan way of saying he is speaking prophetically here. What's to follow is to be taken as the words of God through the mouthpiece of a prophet who is empowered and directed by this Holy Spirit. Verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. We don't know when. We don't know in what way. But it had been revealed to him that he would see the Messiah and he would not die before that time. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. One small detail about this description is it doesn't seem as though, unlike Anna, who we'll get to in just a second, it doesn't seem as though Simeon was just lingering around the temple. It doesn't seem like he was just hanging out, waiting for this to happen. It says that he was directed by the Spirit. It's like he woke up that day and was like, I guess, I guess it's temple time because the Spirit is, is leading me there. And it's, it's one of those scenes that you would like to have seen play out. The temple complex is massive. Massive. Like many football fields in size. Massive. And it's chaotic, especially in the... the, the um, the outer courts, which is where Mary, Mary wouldn't have been allowed to go past the, the court of women. So in the outer courts, it's incredibly huge. And it would have been hustling and bustling. And it, I just want to see what it looks like for this aging prophet to go into this busy center of religious activity and beeline towards a baby. And then just yank it out of his mom's arms. Hold it up, Simba style, start talking to God. It's an incredible scene. The Spirit was directing not only his speech, but his actions as a prophet. And based on this promise that God made to him, that you will not pass away before you see your Messiah, he's overjoyed at the presence of God's salvation. Now he's ready to die. And this is the beginning. Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promise. It's the beginning of a very famous prayer called the Nunc Dimittis. You can... Like millions of people pray this prayer every single day in a daily prayer service. He continues the rest of the prayer. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, what's so fascinating about how Simeon frames this up is he doesn't see anything of the results of this salvation. He doesn't see any consequence of God's salvation here. He just sees the face of a Messiah. And that satiates his hope in such a way that he's ready to go. My eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared it in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. Now in verse 32, we have this fascinating expansion. Because we've had... We've had Israelites that are looking for their Messiah. And Simeon says that this will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He starts to expand it. 
Now, this isn't necessarily new, but it isn't thoroughly understood at this point either. You get a lot of this in the end of Isaiah. You get a lot of this in the servant songs. But you have to read deeply, and it's, it's not so overt as to say, well, obviously the gospel is for the Gentiles as well. No, like, uh, much of the Old Testament seems to be uniquely oriented toward the people of Israel. And this prophet, under the inspiration and the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit, says, for everyone. He's come, this baby is going to be here for everyone. He's probably drawing on passages like Isaiah 40, the first five verses. And notice the connection between uh, this, this prophetic utterance in Isaiah and, and, and Simeon's in terms of the, the consolation and the comfort piece. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Talking about the judgment that God brought on his people. And then this should sound very familiar. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Which sounds like it's got this double meaning. Is, is, there, is that a, a, a safe passage from the land of Babylon back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, back to Judea? Of course it means that. But is it also a prophet crying out in the wilderness, paving the path for his cousin named Jesus? John the Baptist, who we just met a few chapters ago. Of course it does. But all this stuff becomes clear as Revelation progresses. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Simeon is pulling on these Old Testament threads and he's looking at this infant and he sees the consolation of Israel. And he sees the light of revelation for the Gentiles. He sees salvation to such a degree that he says to God, now I can go. There's nothing better than this. Now I can go. And in a room full of, I would assume, mostly Gentiles, we can look at this and be so overwhelmed with gratitude that God would be gracious enough to open up the light of salvation that is available in his Messiah to all humanity and to all Gentiles. Now how radical would this extension have been to its early audience? Because we are way on this side of the cross and we're like, well, of course the gospel's for everyone. And in the temple complex in the first century, what Simeon's saying sounds nuts. It sounds insane. In fact, the only framework they would have had for that would have been Gentile converts to Judaism. And he's talking about this Messiah. So you would become um, a Jewish proselyte so that you could have access to Israel's Messiah. And Simeon says, you mean to everyone's Messiah. Everyone's Messiah. This Gentile extension would have been incredibly radical. It would prove to be incredibly divisive, which helps us understand where Simeon's going next. 
Because for two and a half chapters, the story of the birth of Jesus Christ in Luke has been all upside. It's been this, it's been that. I mean, it's been an kind of a surprising, shameful pregnancy, but by and large, it's been all upside. This Jesus, it's, it's, he's just all positives from here on out. And then Simeon says, uh, pump the bricks. He's going to be complicated. He continues in verse 33. His father and mother, Mary and Joseph, were amazed at what was being said about Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them. Awesome. Great. Thank you. And then told Mary, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. Wait, what? I thought this was all good. You mean he's going to bring opposition? Also, the sword will pierce your own soul. And the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Simeon here provides the first ominous um, hint that there's going to be opposition to Jesus and to his kingdom. And that that opposition is actually going to result in the judgment that comes down on his kinsmen, on the Israelites. This is a very important question that is taken up in, in Romans, say, 9, 10, and 11. We see it play out throughout this gospel. Mary herself, she is going to be two things. She's going to be a mother to this child, but she's going to be one of his most devoted followers. And boy, is her soul going to be pierced in about 33 years when she sees her son hanging from a cross. We don't know at that point what degree of hope she had in anything past that, but she did see her son executed in a public, shameful, humiliating way. And Mary is known from this gospel to be one who, who treasures things in her heart, and I, I'm quite certain she remembers what Simeon said at that time. Jesus is going to be divisive, much like the Gentile inclusion, because he is going to take God's gospel, his good news of grace, and he's going to tell it to sinners. He's going to tell it to tax collectors. He's going to go hang out with Samaritans and with Gentiles. And by the end of the Gospels, they just can't take it anymore. And some of the most overt language you can find, it just says they decided they need to kill him. And Simeon becomes a prophet confirmed by reality. I think if, 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 he, if Simeon describes that there's going to be like a fall and a rise in Israel, I think if you look at what Luke wrote, he gave us two volumes. I think the gospel of Luke is the fall. You see the nation turn on Jesus. You see him totally rejected by his kinsmen. You see him executed by Romans. Fall. And then Acts opens up. And the church explodes with Israelites. Thousands come to faith. And you see the rise. And it isn't until quite a bit into the book of Acts, again, written by Luke, that the gospel starts to be uh, going out into the, the Gentile area. And it isn't even until chapter 15 
that the apostles sanction it. There's the fall in the gospel and the rise in Acts. Scene three, verse 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phunuel of the tribe of Asher. By the way, we don't really know why Luke gives those details. Probably just to establish her as yet another Israelite and to be the second of a pair of witnesses to the identity of Jesus. But Asher's not a significant enough tribe to, to like brag about it. You would rather be from Judah or Benjamin. Asher was kind of a, an outlier tribe. But that's where she's from. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple which I have to assume is hyperbolic. But she did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So again, she serves with Simeon as the the second in a pair of witnesses, which it seems as though under this whole narrative, Luke is touching the law frequently. The, the requirement to, to, to dedicate your son, the requirement to make offering and sacrifices for ceremonial purity, the requirement to even have, in a very subtle way, two witnesses to establish someone's identity and the truthfulness of a story. You have in Anna, witness number two. If she were married at the, probably some of the most common ages of this, this time period in, in history, she would have been married at probably age 13 or 14. Tack on 84, uh, seven years of being married and then 84 years of being a widow. She's about 103, 104. She's up there. She's been waiting. And she loses her mind when she sees him. And it says that she's been fasting. One commentator, I really thought this was a, an interesting way to describe fasting. He said, fasting is a form of protest, an assertion that all is not well. We often fast for many reasons, but for to discipline our bodies, to trust God when we are struggling with that. We, we, we fast out of just devotion, longing for things to be set right. We fast when trying to um, uh, allow the spirit or, or ask the spirit to give us the wisdom to make difficult decisions. There's lots of reasons we fast, but I, I thought that it was really a nice, all-encompassing definition to say it's a, it's a form of protest against the status quo and it's a sign that all is not well. So she's fasting and she's praying. And her fasting and her prayer coupled together, they, this devotion leads to God using her to proclaim the identity of this child. She uses the phrase, or Luke uses the phrase, the redemption of Jerusalem. So she comes and thanks God. She blesses God. She speaks about this baby to everyone she can see who has also been hoping for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so far as I can tell, the redemption of Jerusalem is, it has nothing necessarily to do with the city itself, but it is a synonym for the phrase, the consolation of Israel. They're, they're paired together. We're looking for God to deliver Zion. 
and they just look at this helpless baby and they see that this is how it's going to happen. The only way they're able to do this is by divine revelation. And then it concludes, verse 39. When they completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. So this story begins with their tending to the law. It ends by reminding that they have fulfilled the law. And then it adds this, just this tag here. That he was filled with wisdom and God's grace was on him. This, this is a, a, something of a subtle hint that God's program of redemption and salvation has always been in waiting for the Messiah, but now that the Messiah has come, some things are changing. And, and it reminded me of what the Apostle John says in his gospel, in chapter 1. He says, the law, describing this Messiah who's come, the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's this signal that the, the, the standard is now finding itself not necessarily in the law verbatim, but in the perfect representative of God's righteousness, Jesus. We have moved into a new era. So Christmas is over. That's the text. Christmas is over. Now what? Christmas is over in Luke's gospel, and we get two prophets. What do we do with Jesus? Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on specifically Simeon's section, one of his sermons, he said this, and I thought this was really helpful. He said, I trust, brethren, when we consider this morning the preparedness of the saints for heaven and turn over in our mind those reflections which will make us ready to depart, God's Holy Spirit sent forth from the Father, will make us all willing to leave these mortal shores and launch upon the eternal sea at the bidding of our Father God. So he sees in Simeon an example of one who demonstrates that when you finally encounter the Messiah, you're ready. You're ready. Do we feel the same comfort at having met Jesus that Simeon did. Because I have to admit that there are lots of things I continue to worry about. If, I, if you were to ask me, you've, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been following Jesus for almost 20 years now. If you, as a follower, believe what you believe about Jesus to be absolutely true, are you ready to go at any moment? Truth be told, I look at my wife, I look at my little kids, I look at lots of relationships, and I struggle to say yes. And I'm not, I'm just being honest here, I'm not quite sure what to do with that. I do often find myself mired in a host of cares and concerns. Um... Even as recently as this last year, finding myself lying awake in bed, truly, for, for the most irrational of reasons, worried that I'm going to die soon, like objectively concerned with my own mortality as a spirit-filled believer in Jesus, concerned. 
And I look at Simeon and I'm like, I don't know how you do this. If you've encountered, I wrote this line out because I just wanted to say these exact words. If you have encountered Jesus and chosen to follow him with your whole life, each of life's problems, and there are many, fades in comparison to having been reborn from death to life. So now you have peace. And now you can live with the peace that should God take you home at any moment, your hope is secure. I think this is a true statement, but it's complicated. I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Um, I believe based on Simeon's example and on Jesus' myriad teachings on the subject, followers of Jesus should be the least anxious people in the world. And I say that, and here's the deep irony, say that totally nervous to say it. It makes me anxious to say that, but I think it's true. And if you're going to come down here in about five minutes and ask me, how do you do that? I'm going to tell you, I don't know. I just know that it's true. Christians should be the least anxious people in the world. We should be always ready to go. And the flip is true. If you don't follow Jesus, you should have no comfort at all. You should be scared out of your minds. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Um, (laughs) R.T. France, a famous commentator, um, in his book on Luke, he reminds us that Christmas isn't the end. He says this. He says, in some churches, the events narrated in 2, 22 through 38, so that's, that's Simeon and Anna, are celebrated at the beginning of February in the festival traditionally known as Candlemas. The candles symbolize the light to the nations. Coming midway between Christmas and Easter, it is a bittersweet festival, looking back to the joy and hope of the coming of the Messiah, but also looking forward to the pain of Good Friday. Simeon's words offer an opportunity to explore this paradox as he both celebrates the dawning of the light of God's salvation and warns Mary of the pain that she must expect and of the division that her son will provoke among God's people. A gospel of Christmas alone is not a whole gospel. Do we sense the same division that Jesus Christ causes that Simeon understood? Or... We're honest with ourselves, sometimes we want to remain naive to the cost of discipleship. And we would rather water down the gospel for the sake of keeping the apparent peace with others in our lives. So I wrote this one down too, because I wanted to say this exactly. If in this room today, you have not encountered Jesus and chosen to follow him with your whole life, Each of life's problems, and there are many, fades in comparison to the fear and anxiety you should feel over your opposition to God. That's what Simeon's getting on about. This Jesus is going to be a dividing rock. He is going to be the rock that is the stumbling stone. 
A gospel of Christmas tidings and cheer is not a whole gospel unless we get to the consequences of Easter. We just celebrated the birth of a baby who is himself the stumbling block. And that baby will one day judge all of creation that he made, by the way. And so for those of us who know him and follow him, there is incredible comfort. We experience the consolation of Israel. And now we can depart in peace. And for those of us who have not encountered this Messiah in faith, you have no peace. There is no consolation. If you are not right with God through your allegiance to Jesus, I would encourage you that the most important thing you can do in 2024 is to encounter him. And it is my prayer that until you do, your life is miserable to the point that God will break you down such that you will recognize your desperate, desperate, desperate eternal need for him. I don't say that in a judgy way. I say that in a way that I see the truth right here. And it is that question we all have to deal with. What do we do with Jesus? And it is my prayer that you will be like Simeon and say, I found him, and now I can depart in peace. Paul wrote a pretty apt summary of Luke chapter 2. In conclusion, he says this in Galatians 4. If we have the law sitting under here and we have this Jesus showing up, we have Paul saying, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that's Christmas, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, that's Easter, Pentecost. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, like we see in Simeon crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir and you can depart in peace. So if we ask ourselves with Simeon, do we have that consolation that brings the peace that surpasses all understanding? There's a secondary response we just see very quickly in Anna is that as we encounter this Messiah, this consolation of Israel, she can't help but offer words of praise and gratitude and then run all over the place telling people about him. So as we put 2023 to bed, can we do that next year? Can we praise him with everything we have and tell everyone we can about him? Or are we willing to just let people die in opposition to God? Are we willing to let people not experience the peace that surpasses all understanding because we just couldn't be bothered to share it with them? In the end, the promised Messiah has come. And that gives us a new status. We are, if we follow him, we, are, we now possess comfort and security. But it also tasks us with new responsibilities to both praise him and work actively on mission such that others can find the same peace, comfort, and security. So we get to share this meal because we've encountered this Jesus. 
Oddly enough, this is a meal that celebrates both the peace we have with God. And in a way, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, it also testifies to who he is. It proclaims his death until he returns. So to the last time we gather around the table in 2023, let's do so with hearts full of gratitude like Anna and minds completely at ease like Simeon. We share the body given for us and the blood poured out for the consolation of Israel.